All right, we are now picking up volume one, and we are starting on chapter four of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, and this is the graphic novel edition. In Monsters Walden, I found a true friend. In a thousand ways, he smoothed for me the path of knowledge. Two years passed in which I made some discoveries, which procured me a great esteem at the university. One of the phenomena which had particularly attracted my attention was the structure of the human frame, and indeed any animal endued with life. Whence did the principle of life proceed? To examine the causes of life, we must first have a recourse to death. I became acquainted with anatomy, but I must also observe the natural decay and corruption of the human body. Darkness had no effect upon my fancy, and a churchyard was to me merely the receptacle of bodies deprived of life, which from the being of the seat of beauty and strength, had become food for the worm. I spent days and nights in vaults and charnel houses. I saw how the fine form of man was degraded and wasted. I paused, examining and analyzing all the minute causation, until, from the midst of darkness, a sudden light broke it upon me. After weeks of incredible labor and fatigue, I succeeded in discovering the cause of generation and of life. When I found so astonishing the power placed within my hands, I hesitated a long time concerning the manner in which I should employ it. Although I possessed the capacity of bestowing animation, yet to prepare a frame for the reception of it with all its intricacies of fibers, muscles, and veins still remained a work of inconceivable difficulty and labor. As the minuteness of the parts formed a great hindrance to my speed, I resolved to make the being of gigantic stature, about eight feet in height and proportionally large. I seemed to have lost all solar sensation but for this one pursuit. In a solitary chamber, or rather cell, I kept my workshop of filthy creation, and often did my human nature turn with loathing from my occupation. I was thus engaged heart and soul in one pursuit. Every night I was oppressed by a slow fever, and I became nervous to almost painful degree. The fall of a leaf startled me, and I shunned my fellow creatures, as if I had been guilty of a crime. Volume 1, Chapter 5. So basically, before we start this, what we're going to do is just kind of backtrack and go over what just happened in this last chapter. Um, Victor Frankenstein has now been working at the university as a student for two years under Monsieur Waldman. And so he's been working on trying to figure out what creates life. So basically he has decided he's going to create a being and he's going to charnel houses, which is where they had dead bodies um, in churchyards, things of that nature. So he's digging up all these bodies and he's decided to use body parts and then the body parts of animals from slaughterhouses in order to create this creature. And he's making it eight foot tall and just as large and wide. Um, so it is proportional. And that is what he is spending every minute working on. But he feels guilty, like he's committed a crime almost. And so that's where he is at. Volume 1, Chapter 5. It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. I collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing. His limbs were in proportion, and I had selected his features as beautiful. Beautiful, great God. I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. I had worked hard for two years, the sole purpose of infusing life into an inanimate body. For this, I had deprived myself of rest and health. But now that I had finished, the beauty of the dream vanished, and breathless horror and disgust filled my heart. 
Unable to endure the aspect of the being I had created, I rushed out of the room. I threw myself onto the bed of my clothes, endeavoring to seek a few moments of forgetfulness. But it was in vain. I slept indeed, but I was disturbed by the wildest dreams. I thought I saw Elizabeth, in the bloom of health, walking in the streets of Ingolstadt. Delighted and surprised, I embraced her. But as I imprinted the first kiss upon her lips, they became livid with the hue of death. Her features appeared to change, and I thought that I held the corpse of my dead mother in my arms. A shroud enveloped her form, and I saw the grave worms crawling in the folds of flannel. I started from my sleep with horror. I beheld the wretch, the miserable monster whom I had created. He might have spoken, but I did not hear. One hand was stretched out, seemingly to detain me, but I escaped, and I took refuge in the courtyard, where I remained during the rest of the night, listening attentively, catching and fearing each sound as if I was to announce the approach of the demonical corpse to which I had so miserably given life. Oh, no mortal could support the horror of that countenance. I had gazed on him while unfinished. He was ugly then. But when those muscles and joints were rendered capable of motion, it became a thing of an even Dante could not have conceived. Dreams that had been my food and pleasant rest for so long, a space, were now become a hell to me. Morning, dismal and wet, at length dawned. I sought to avoid the wretch whom I feared every turning of would the street present to my view. I did not dare to return to the apartment which I inhabited. I traversed the streets without any clear conception of where I was going or what I was doing. My heart palpated in the sickness of fear. My dear Frankenstein, how glad I am to see you. How fortunate that you should be here at the very moment of my alighting. I grasped his hand and in a moment I forgot my horror and misfortune. Henry Clerval! You may easily believe how great was the difficulty to persuade my father that all necessary knowledge was not comprised in the noble art of bootpicking. But his affection for me at length overcame the dislike of learning, and he has permitted me to undertake a voyage of discovery to the land of knowledge. It gives me great delight to see you, but tell me, how you left my father, brothers, and Elizabeth? Oh, very well, and very happy, only a little uneasy from that they heard so from you so seldom. By the by, I did not before remark how ill you appear, so thin and pale, and look as if you've been watching for several nights. You have guessed right. I have lately been so deeply engaged in one occupation that I have not allowed myself sufficient rest. But I hope sincerely that all employments are now at an end, and that I am at length free. I trembled excessively. I walked with a quick pace, and we soon arrived at my college. I then reflected, and the thought made me shiver, that the creature might still be there in my apartment. I dreaded to behold this monster, but I feared still more that Henry should see him. Uh, Henry, uh, remain a few minutes. A cold shivering came over me, but I became assured that my enemy had indeed fled. I clapped my hands for joy and ran down for Clerval. The servant brought us breakfast, but I was unable to contain myself. My dear Victor, for God's sake, what's the matter? How ill you are! What is the cause of all of this? I thought I saw the dreaded specter glide into the room. Do not ask me, he can tell. Oh, save me, save me! I fell down in a fit. Poor Clerval. What must have been his feelings? A meeting which he anticipated with so much joy, so strangely turned to bitterness. I did not recover my senses for a long, long time. This was the commencement of a nervous fever which confined me for several months. During all that time, Henry was my only nurse. Knowing my father's advanced age and how wretched my sickness would make Elizabeth, he spared them with grief by concealing the extent of my disorder. By very slow degrees and with frequent relapses that alarmed and grieved my friend, I recovered. 
It was a divine spring, and the season contributed greatly to my convalescence. Dearest Clerval, how kind, how very good you are to me. This whole winter, instead of being spent in study, has been consumed in my sick room. How shall I ever repay you? Well, you will repay me entirely, if you get well, and as fast as you can. And since you appear in such good spirits, your father and Elizabeth would be very happy if they received a letter from you. They hardly know how ill you have been, and are uneasy at your long silence. How could you suppose that my first thought would not fly towards those dear, dear friends? Then you will be glad to see this letter. That has been lying here for some days for you. It is from your cousin, I believe. All right, so what's happened in this chapter is Victor Frankenstein has created the monster and then said, oh snap, um, I messed up. He is now absolutely terrified. He has a mental breakdown and his friend Henry is the one that ends up taking care of him for several months because he is basically taken by a fit of madness and he's having a nervous breakdown about this monster. Um, as he's recovering now, now he's finding that there's a letter from his cousin and that's where we're on with volume one, chapter six. Volume one, chapter six. My dearest cousin, you have been very, very ill and even the constant letters of dear kind Henry are not sufficient to reassure me on your account. Get well and return to us. You will find a happy, cheerful home and friends who love you dearly. Your father's health is vigorous and he asks but to see you, but to be well assured that you are well. How pleased you would be to remark the improvement of our Ernest. He is now 16 and is toils to enter the foreign service, but we cannot part with him until his elder brother returns to us. I wish you could see little darling William. He is very tall of his age with sweet laughing eyes. When he smiles, two little dimples appear on each cheek. He has already had one or two little wives, but Louisiana Byron is his favorite, a pretty girl of five years of age. Do you remember on what occasions Justine Mortz entered our family? Her mother was a widow with four children, of whom Justine was the third. Through a strange perversity, her mother could not endure her and treated her ill. When Justine was 12 years of age, she came to live at our house. Justine, you may remember, was a great favorite of yours. You once remarked that if you were in an ill humor, one glance from Justine could dissipate it. One by one, her brothers and sisters died and Justine was called home by her repentant mother. She sometimes begged Justine to forgive her unkindness, but much oftener accused her of having caused the deaths of her brothers and sisters. But Madame Ortiz is now at peace forever. She died on the first approach of cold weather at the beginning of last winter. Justine has returned to us and I assure you I love her tenderly. She is very clever and gentle and extremely pretty. I have written myself into better spirits, dear cousin, but my anxiety returns upon me as I conclude. Adieu. And I entreat you write, Elizabeth Lavenza. Dear, dear Elizabeth, I will write instantly and relieve them from all the anxiety they must feel. I wrote, and this excursion greatly fatigued me, but my convalescence has commenced, and I proceeded regularly. In another fortnight, I was able to leave my chamber. Ever since the fatal night and the end of my labors, I had conceived a violent antipathy, even to the name of natural philosophy. I could never persuade myself to confide to Clerval, that event which was so often present to my recollection. Clerval came to the university with the design of making himself a master of the oriental languages, and thus he should open a field for the plan of life he had marked out for himself. I was easily induced to enter in on the same studies. I found not only instruction but consolation in the works of the Orientalists. Their melancholy is soothing and their joy elevating to a degree I never experienced in studying the authors of any other country. When you read their writings, life appears to consist in a warm sun and a garden of roses, in the smiles and frowns of a fair enemy, and the fire that consumes your own heart. Summer passed. My return to Geneva was delayed by several accidents. 
Winter and snow arrived, the roads were deemed impassable, and my journey was retarded until the ensuing spring. I felt this delay bitterly. Henry proposed a pedestrian farewell tour in the environs of Ingolstadt, that I might well bid personal farewell to the country I had so long inhabited. Excellent friend. We passed a fortnight in these preambulations. My health and spirits had long been restored, but Clairvaux called forth the better feelings of my heart. He again taught me to love the aspect of nature and the cheerful faces of children. I became the same happy creature who, a few years ago, loved and beloved by all, had no sorrow or care. Everyone we met appeared happy. My own spirits were high and I bounded along with a feeling of unbridled joy and hilarity. All right, so in this chapter, um, Elizabeth, his adopted sister, has now sent him a letter saying, please come home, we miss you. You remember Justine, she used to work for us and then she had to go take care of her mother. Well, her mother died, so now she's back, um, but we do miss you. Um, Victor Frankenstein is now planning on going back home with Henry Clerval. However, poor weather makes it so that they have to stay until the spring. And so they decide they're going to go on this little tour to say goodbye to Ingolstadt. Volume 1, Chapter 7. On my return, I found the following letter from my father. My dear Victor, you have probably waited impatiently to fix the date of your return to us. But how, Victor, can I relate our misfortune? William is dead. That sweet child whose smiles delighted and warmed my heart, who was so gentle. Victor, he is murdered. Last Thursday, I, my niece, and your two brothers went to walk in Polenopus. The evening was warm and serene, and we prolonged our walk further than usual. Ernest, William! It was already dusk before we thought of returning, and then we discovered that William and Ernest, who had been gone on before, were not to be found. Have you seen William? I had been playing with him. William ran away to hide. I vainly sought for him and waited for him a long time, but he did not return. This account rather alarmed us, and we continued to search for him until night fell. I could not rest when I thought that my sweet boy had lost himself and was exposed to all damps and dews of the night. About five in the morning I discovered my lovely boy, livid and motionless. The print of the murderer's finger was on his neck. Oh God, I have murdered my charming child. William had teased me to let him wear the very last valuable miniature that I possess of his mother. This picture is gone and was doubtless the temptation which urged the murderer to the deed. We have no trace of the murderer at present, although our exertions to discover him are unremitted, but they will not restore my beloved William. Come, dearest Victor, you alone can console Elizabeth. She weeps continually and accuses herself unjustly. We are all unhappy, but that will not be an additional motive for you, my son, to return to our comforter. You are affectionate and afflicted father, Alphonse Frankenstein. My dear Frankenstein, are we always to be unhappy? I can offer you no consolation, my friend. Your disaster is irreparable. What do you intend to do? To go instantly to Geneva. Come with me to order the horses. I bade farewell to my friend. As I drew near home, grief and fear again overcame me. Night also closed around. The picture appeared vast and dim scene of evil, and I foresaw obscurely that I was destined to become the most wretched of the human beings. It was completely dark when I arrived in the environs of Geneva, and as I was unable to rest, I resolved to visit the spot where my poor William had been murdered. As I could not pass through the town, I was obliged to cross the lake in a boat to arrive at Palampis. During this short voyage, I saw the lightning playing on the summit of Mount Blanc. The darkness and storm increased every minute, and the thunder burst with a terrific crash over my head. It was echoed from Saleve, the Juras, and the Alps of Savoy. William, dear angel, this is the future. This is thy funeral. This is thy dirge. 
As I said these words, I perceived in the gloom a figure. I could not be mistaken. A flash of lightning illuminated the object and discovered it, its shape plainly to me. Its gigantic stature and the deformity of its aspect instantly informed me that I was the wretch, that, that filthy daemon to whom I had given life. What did he there? Could he be the murderer of my brother? I became convinced of its truth. Nothing in human shape could have destroyed that fair child. He was the murderer. Pursuing the devil would have been in vain, for in another flash he disappeared among the rocks of Mount Salave. He soon reached the summit and disappeared. It was about five in the morning when I entered my father's house. I told the servants not to disturb the family and went into the library to attend their usual hour of rising. Six years had elapsed, passed as a dream, but for one indelible trace. Welcome, my dearest Victor. Ernest, ah, I wish you'd come three months ago. You come to us now to share our misery? Yet your presence will, I hope, revive our father, and your persuasions will induce Elizabeth to cease her vain and tormenting self-accusations. Elizabeth! She most of all requires consolation. She accuses herself of having caused the death of my brother. But since the murder has been discovered... The murder discovered? Good God! How can that be? Who could attempt to pursue him? It is impossible. One might as well try to overtake the wind or confine the mountain stream with straw. I saw him too. He was free last night. I, I do not know what you mean. Poor, poor girl, is she the accused? But it is wrongfully. No one believes it's surely her, Ernest. The discovery we have made completes our misery. No one would believe it at first, notwithstanding all the evidence. But everyone thinks it's Justine Mortz. No one did believe it at first, but several circumstances came out that have almost forced conviction upon us, and her own behavior has been so confused to add the evidence of facts a weight that I fear leaves no hope for doubt. But she will be tried today, and then you will hear all. Justine had been taken ill on the morning that poor William's murder was discovered. She was confined to her bed for several days. During this interval, one of the servants discovered in her pocket the picture of my mother, which had been judged to be the temptation of the murderer. Justine was apprehended and confirmed the suspicion by her extreme confusion of manner. You are all mistaken. I know the murder Justine. Poor good Justine is innocent. Good, good papa. Victor says that he knows who was the murderer of poor William. Justine is innocent. If she is, God forbid, that she should suffer as guilty. Your arrival, my dear cousin, fills me with hope. If Justine is condemned, I shall never know peace anymore. She is innocent, my Elizabeth, and that shall be proved. Fear nothing. All right, so this is a longer chapter. What happens is he gets a letter from his father when he's at school, and he finds out that his youngest brother, who's about five or six, has been murdered. So right away, he has to rush back home um, to help with this grief of the family. And once he gets there, he is told by his other brother, who's about 16, that Justine, the housekeeper, um, is being judged and tried as being the murderer of Henry, um, of, of William. And Victor is very upset about this because he has seen his monster. He has seen his creation, and he knows in his heart that his monster is the one that killed his little brother, William. So he's now trying to convince everyone that Justine is innocent, and there's no way that she can stand trial for this murder that she did not commit. Volume 1, Chapter 8. We passed a few sad hours until 11 o'clock when the trial was to commence. A thousand times rather would I have confessed myself guilty of the crime ascribed to Justine, but such a declaration would have been considered the ravings of a madman. 
The appearance of Justine was calm. She appeared confident in innocence and did not tremble. She was tranquil, yet her tranquility was evidently constrained. A tear seemed to dim her eye when she saw us, but she quickly recovered herself. A look of sorrowful affection seemed to attest her utter guiltlessness. Justine had been out the whole of the night which the warder had committed, and towards morning had been perceived by a market woman, not far from the body, not far from where William's body was found. I asked what she did there, but she looked strangely and only returned a confused and unintelligible answer. Justine was called on for her defense. Sometimes she struggled with her tears, but when she was desired to plead, she collected her powers and spoke in an audible, though variable, voice. God knows how entirely I am innocent. I, I had passed the evening at the house of my aunt in Cheyenne. On my return, I met a man who asked if I had seen anything of the child who was lost. I, I passed several hours in looking when the gates of Geneva were shut. I was forced to spend the night in a barn. This is the picture that the servant found in Justine's pocket. The same which Elizabeth placed around his neck an hour before the child had been missed. A murmur of horror and indignation filled the court. Towards morning, some steps disturbed me and I woke. It was dawn and I thought I might endeavor to find the child again. If I had been bewildered by the market woman, it was not surprising having passed a sleepless night. I can give no account for the picture. I know how heavily this one circumstance weighs against me, but I have no power of explaining how it might have been placed in my pocket. I commit my cause to the justice of the judges, yet I see no room for hope. Several witnesses were called, who had known her for many years, and they spoke well of her. Elizabeth addressed the court in defense of the accused, but public indignation was turned on poor Justine with renewed violence. I passed a night of unmingled wretchedness. In the morning I went to the court, the ballots had been thrown, they were all black, and Justine was condemned. But she has confessed! Alas, how shall I ever believe again in human goodness? I will go, although she is guilty, and you, Victor, shall accompany me. Oh, Justine, why did you rob me of my last consolation? I relied on your innocence. I did confess, but I confessed a lie. I confessed that I might obtain absolution. But now that falsehood lies heavier at my heart than all my other sins. What could I do? The God of heaven forgive me. Ever since I was condemned, my confessor has threatened and menaced until I almost began to think that I was the monster that he said I was. What could I do? Oh, Justine, forgive me for having one moment distrusted you. Do not fear. I will proclaim, I will prove your innocence. You shall not die. I do not fear to die. That pang is past. I feel as if I could die in peace now that my innocence is acknowledged by you, dear lady and your cousin. Thus the poor sufferer tried to comfort others and herself. But I, the true murderer, felt the never-dying worm alive in my bosom which allowed of no hope or consolation. Okay, so what's happened here is now they are in court for trial for Justine. She's being tried for the murder of William. And the evidence against her is that they found a picture of, in a locket of William's mother. And it's the locket that Elizabeth had given him and he was wearing on his neck. And then he was dead, and it was not around his neck. It was found in Justine's pocket. She has no recollection of how it got there. She says that she was looking for him, and she got locked out of the city, so she had to spend the night in a barn. When she woke up, it was in her pocket, and she didn't know it. 
and she was confused. So when the lady asked her questions, she didn't really know how to respond because she'd been sleeping in a barn, okay, and was worried about this child. Um, unfortunately for her, because of the time period it was in, everyone voted and they condemned her to death. Um, so they decided that she would hang. And that is where we are at for volume one. We will start volume two tomorrow.